Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting harvesting happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about the inner and outer journey of self-construction. My guest today is Dr. Brian Lowry who is the Walter Kenneth Kilpatrick Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford University and a social psychologist by training. He currently leads the Leadership for Society program at the Graduate School of Business, was recently founding co-director of Stanford New Institute on Race, host of the podcast Know What You See, and recently published a book, which we're going to talk about today, Selfless, The Social Creation of You. And I am happy to have Brian Lowry in the house. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm happy to be here. I am. I am great and happy to be here with you and eager to learn about the construction of self, because this is a study that the average person doesn't really think about. But you have spent an extraordinary amount of time thinking about and researching <laughs> this. So why do you study this subject besides besides the casual interest? Oh, because um, human beings are fascinating, uh, you know. And, you know, to some extent, we all study each other and I just do it in a little bit more focused way, I would say. I'm just really interested in what makes us us and how we engage with each other and live in the world. So what do you mean when you say the self is a social construction? I mean, I think I get it, but are we really something that is who we are, something that is put together by what is referenced externally, or is it internally driven or a combination of the two? Well, you know, to some extent, it's a combination of the two. Um, certainly you are a physical being and you have parents and, and you have genetics. and All those things are true. But when people think about themselves and how they exist in the world, I don't think that's what they have in mind. I think what they have in mind is what they love. Um, what they don't like, um, how they feel about work, their relationships. And those things are affected by our physicality, but aren't dictated by it. So, for example, um, gender, which is really big right now. And I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's a big part of how they see themselves as a man or as a woman or non-binary or however else they define themselves along, along lines of gender. That's not really about, it's not dictated by our physical presence, affected by it, but not dictated by it. What's It's dictated by, I would argue, is how people engage with us. They mm. see us as men and women, men or women. Do they, they, do they act like we're men or, men or women? That's what makes us a man or woman. Now, the way people interact with you will be affected by your physical presence, 
But again, what makes you a man or a woman is how people define you and how you define yourself, the combination of those things. And that's what I mean by social construction. There's another element that comes to mind as you describe this, and this is what the media describes as what a man or a woman is. So how much of it is internal, external, and then completely fabricated to just sell stuff? (laughs) <laughs> well, I would say the fabric, the fabrication is a part of the relational part to me, right? So it's fabricated. That fabrication exists in relationships, right? It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not something in the world like a rock, right? It's a story that someone is telling, yeah, right? It's, it's affecting how you, it's affecting the things you buy. It's affecting the things you buy because it's affecting how you want to engage with other people, how you want other people to see you. And again, all of that, I'd argue, is social construction. Um, we do it, we can do it in big kind of collaborations, or we can do it in small little interactions in our day-to-day lives. But all of that, what you see in the media, how it affects you, social construction. What are some other components or elements to social construction? Mm. So you can think about it in terms of time too, right? So you're born into a story that's already ongoing, right? You exist in a culture. That culture has categories and meanings and symbols um, that help you understand yourself, right? So it could be something simple as like, what kind of food do you eat, right? Why do you like that? I mean, that is in part about the world you're born into. So there's this cultural component that's really important and I think of that as social construction, but at a different kind of time scale than most people think about. Um, so who you are is the product of where you are in time as much as where you are physically in terms of your space and the people around you. So I think that's another really important component of what makes us who we are, what makes the self what it is. That's interesting. I never thought about it in terms of time, but I get it. I do get what you're saying. And I also get what you're saying about being born into a story. And then that story has a narrative that can go several different ways, right? Depending upon what we Mm -hmm. do with the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I think is great when you think about the story metaphor and, you know, there are philosophers and English professors who talk about kind of a narrative self. But I think what's important is when you think of the self, often we think of ourselves as the protagonists in our own stories. And we behave as if that story started when we were born. But that clearly is not true. (laughs) And um, what else is funny about the time concept is that human beings want their their story to continue after after they've gone. So that's also a big part of what it means to be human is to think about what it means to be mortal right? Yeah. That we don't get to be here forever. How do we, how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of ourselves in that it's temporary? And so there's the other time component, which is the desire to project ourselves into a future beyond our physical presence. I hear what you're saying. And I think this is something that many of us think about as we get older, you know, that, that what we will leave behind and the parts of our selves that tell this story about how we showed up for this one life. You know, I get, I get that. And that's, that's big. And, and, and contemplating one's own mortality, I think is a huge part of the social construct. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also interesting and there's, 
empirical work on this that people sometimes or frequently seek symbolic immortality. It's not, I think it's, it's not so much that people are like, what am I going to leave behind? It's more, how do I not leave? At all. <laughs> Which is, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do I not leave? I mean, when people, there's studies that find evidence, for example, that um, when death is on people's minds, they um, would like to believe that things like the country they're from will exist for a much longer time, like thousands of years longer. And the question is, why would they do that? It's in part because they see themselves as embedded in that country. And if the country continues to exist, then to some extent, so do they. It's a desire for symbolic immortality. Mm. That's big, actually. <laughs> you know, that, it's, it becomes a, a philosophical exercise as well, you know? Mm-hmm, for sure. I think the things I'm really interested in are often at the intersection of philosophy and psychology. I come at it mostly from the psychological side. So you see these empirical data, but then you have to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean that people are more attached to um, relationships or more attached to um, big kind of societal ideas when they think about their death? What does that tell you about human beings? What does that tell you about our needs and how we engage with each other and what we want out of life? Um, and that's where the philosophy part kind of starts to come in. So when we look at the title of your book, Selfless, Selfless or Selfless, are mm-hmm. you trying to imply that the s- construction of self is more or less successful if we are focused less on self? Uh, the outer so much. Part? I mean, uh, you know, it's an interesting interpretation. I haven't thought of it that way. Um, the way I, I, I think about it is that um, the self as a, the, the term is like an essential being, right? So the idea that there is, you existed as, let's call it, for lack of a better term, a soul somewhere prior to your birth. And that soul was marked as you. Everything that you think you are was marked on that soul that then was brought to life in your body. Like that I think that way of thinking about the self is not correct. It's too singular. It's too individualistic. That self as like an island, I think is wrong. And so the self, as I want to think about it, is really um, a combination of, of many people that you are not, or you are not yourself alone. In fact, that you cannot be a self by yourself. Yes, <laughs> I get and, it. <laughs> and that is what I mean. Like I want to push against this, this like kind of really extreme individualism that, that I think permeates our, our way of thinking often. When we talk about emotional baggage, you know, it's like we show up to the party with our baggage and all that intergenerational baggage and the story of our ancestors and our ancestors' stories, all of that is there and within us and part of us, I think is what you're saying. 100%. I might even, I can't remember if I this line stayed in the book or not, but when, when you meet someone, you're meeting a host of people, a host of characters. <laughs> like yes. you never, you yeah. never, it's just never just the person sitting in front of you, right? It's all that they brought with them and all that you bring with you. Those, all those people are there. Yeah. It's like when you enter into a relationship, a deeply attached, connected love relationship with somebody, it's never just you and that person, 
right? It's all the dynamics that they have brought forth from those families of origin are sitting in that relationship with you. 100%. And you know, there's a, another way, because I think sometimes it can feel overwhelming and and maybe even um, a little bit suffocating. But another way to think about it, I like to remind people is that every person you walk past is a whole world. Like you're a whole, you are a whole world. If every person you engage with is a whole world. Like there's something amazing about that, that I think we don't uh, think about enough or appreciate. Like the world is an amazing place and every human being has so much to, there to possibly share with you or for you to learn from. And that we don't, sometimes I don't think we grant each other our full humanity in that way. And we, if we don't do that, are missing opportunities. I agree with you. And, and, and I think that's where curiosity comes in to the construction equation here, right? That if we're not curious about what's out there and we don't go seeking those opportunities for learning about others, then there's a stagnancy that develops when ourself, within ourselves. 100%. I think, so going back to the kind of the, the world metaphor is that your world is smaller if you don't deeply engage with other people. Yeah. And I mean that literally, like the world is not just what you see, that's the world you see. And other people exist in a whole nother experience. And you have the opportunity to enlarge your world through real deep engagement with other people. And I think, you know, if you, if you have, and I'm sure people listening to your program have meaningful relationships, and you can easily see this. You can see how a good, deep relationship really expands the world for you. You see things and feel things that you couldn't see and feel without them, right? They bring things into your life that wouldn't have been there. And every person has that potential. You know, not everyone is going to be in a deep, deep connection, but even a fleeting connection opens a little window for you onto a world that you don't have access to otherwise. That's so true. So 100%, to quote you, 500%. <laughs> We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Brian Lowry. We're talking about his book, Selfless, The Social Creation of You. To learn more, please go to knowwhatyousee.com on Twitter at knowwhatyousee. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Research tells us that happiness is good for our health. Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for nutritious helpings of positive goodness. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and at times we all need a little support. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and at the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com to explore experiential online and on-site optimal lifestyle management consulting services, including recovery fortification and life crisis triage. And we're back, continuing the conversation with my guest today, Dr. Brian Lowry. We're talking about the inner and outer journey of self-construction. Let's get back to it. So, Brian. We're talking about the social construction, a uh, perception of self that's both inner and outer referenced, the, the nature and importance of good, connected social relationships, 
I want to turn for a moment to one of the chapters in your book that got my attention, and that is hugs and straitjackets. And it kind of comes from left field, but it all interrelates. So was there, was there a particular thing that struck you about the chapter? I'm curious what, what was... Well, the title, first of all, <laughs> just grabbed me in. And I was thinking, well, hugs and straitjackets, oh, you know, what is it about that that you related to one another? I mean, and, and uh, all I could think is about when you're in a, in a straitjacket, you're forced to hug yourself. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um, so a big part of the book is this tension between um, the social construction of self um, and the desire for freedom. So when you think about what it means to be a self, if you follow the ideas that I have in the book about relationships constructing us, it suggests that you are limited by those relationships, which is correct, right? So my, from my perspective, to be something, it means that you're not something else, right? When someone, you define something, you limit it. And there's a way in which that feels um, constricting. That's the straitjacket part, right? That other people are defining me, that feels constricting. But at the same time, there are ways in which they're, there are ways in which those definitions are deeply comforting, right? I don't know, you know, if you have kids, but if you have kids, if you're, you think of yourself as a mother, you think of yourself as a mother, or you think of yourself as a daughter, or you think of yourself as a, a spouse or a podcaster, things that make you happy about your life. Those are hugs. Those are what I mean by hugs. Those are relationships like encircling you and defining you. Um, and it feels nice and comforting. But there are other ways to think about those same kind of confining, encircling things as more straitjackets that some people can feel uh, as, yeah, a, a little bit uncomfortable. And yeah. it's just thinking about that tension. How do you think about that? That's that's why the hugs and straitjackets kind of title. So the very thing that gives us soul food and is nurturing these really delicious, connected relationships at the same time sort of clips our independence or can be seen to clip our independence or restrict ourselves in some way. Uh-huh. And it's the, it's the, the part that you love is the part that's restricting you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's what's strange about it. It's just that I think there's a, if it can sound paradoxical, I think because we put so much emphasis on freedom and lose sight of the, the importance of deep connection and what that requires of us. Oh, yes, I agree with you. I mean, we, we need those connections. Like we, we need our partners and our children and our aunts and uncles and, and siblings and parents and, you know, crazy neighbors and crazy friends. We, we, we do need that. 100%. It tethers us to the world. Yeah. Right? Without that, it, you would just be floating free. And I mean, free, I, I mean that literally, but I don't think people really want that kind of freedom. And I think when people say they want to be free, they haven't, they have, they should be more, they should be more specific about what that means. Cause I think it may be impossible to have the kind of freedom that some people would like. And even if they did, they wouldn't want it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A world without oxytocin would not be nice. No, no. <laughs> you and, <know>? you, <laughs> no. and you, you like, you, those, I mean, those interactions and relationships are incredible, right? They, I mean, for many people, they make life worth living and yeah, they do limit you. Right. And that is, I don't, I don't know if it's a price to be paid or it's the, um, the benefit itself, but there you go. There's this incredible tension between being a person, being a human being and 
being free of constraints imposed by others. Like those two things are, I would argue, incompatible. But are the, the constraints real or are they a construct of the mind, right? Because I'm in relationship with you or somebody else and it feels good and we're connected is a, is a good thing. It elevates our emotion. It elevates our well-being. It, it has all good stuff. But my perception of what freedom really is, is a mental state as well. Uh, maybe. Uh, you know, I, if you, and I think people do this, like they, they, make them compatible. So then again, it's like, what do we mean by freedom? If you mean like, I feel free, then certainly you can have that feeling of freedom in the context of um, quite confining relationships. And I think there's not attention there. If what people mean is something like, I can do whatever I want without um, other people influencing my behavior, that probably doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> I do think of situations, and this is going to turn the conversation a little bit dark, where people are physically not within a free space, right? They're either, Mm. they live in a country where they don't have a lot of civil liberties, they are in a very restricted environment, and yet some of those people within that social context find freedom regardless of the physical or outer reference circumstance. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what in the book I try to make the distinction between freedom and you know in the in some objective sense because I don't it depends on what people mean by that and the feeling of freedom. So I think that you can have the feeling of freedom in all sorts of situations. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and it's a challenge because people will say, "Well, I can't do X, Y, or Z because I don't have the freedom to do to do that." You know, what, what, what holds you back from that is what I you know, ask. I, yeah, I, um, I think it's this, maybe it's the um, kind of the gap between some of the feeling of freedom and the, the reality of it. And maybe that gap is, and this is what you were saying earlier, maybe it's in how you perceive it, um, right, that... I, somebody who doesn't have a lot of objective freedoms, like let's say they live in a restrictive country, let's say they're incarcerated, who knows what the situation is, they could still have a sense of freedom that's, you know, could be relatively expansive, their sense of freedom, independent of their, or separate from their actual situation. And then you could have, in contrast, someone else who has what looks to be like a lot of objective freedom, and they could feel very confined. Yeah. Um, In those cases, what's going on is the people's perceptions of their situation varying more than maybe the objective circumstances they're in. And therein lies the, the freedom of self-determination to design your life experience that is separate from condition. Like we can't always control, control the conditions of our lives, right? The external conditions, but we can control our response to them. Yeah, you sound like an existentialist now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, my yeah, family I mean, would eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there's, there's, um, I think that's like reasonable. I, 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 um, you know, yeah, I don't know how I think about the self determination all the time. Like, I think that, I think it's useful for people to have that sense of control of their own lives. I think that's important. 
I also think it can veer into a sense of everything that happens to me is my responsibility and a um, oh, not, I don't agree with that. I, I'm yeah, with you. And, and, <laughs> yeah, an insufficient respect for yeah. the importance of the situation, you know? Yeah, I think what I'm more or less saying is like, I know that I can't control my partner. I know that I can't control my kids. I know that I can't control politics. <laughs> I mean, those are facts. I'd like to think that I can control all three of those things, but I know that I can't. But I can control how I choose to show up in relationship to those things and people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. Like there's a sense that it's important. I think that people have a sense that they can control their response to their circumstance. Right. And I think that's it's helpful. Yeah, <laughs> it gives us it's, order. It's, it's, useful. <laughs> it's useful. Yes, indeed it does. It's the tether. Um, it is. It's, um, I think that's important. I think, um, that it's hard to have a sense of like meaning in your life, probably without some degree of what we'd call self-efficacy, the feeling that like what you do matters, that you can affect outcomes, you can affect your own life, that you that you need that for sure. Well, it'd be pretty sad to think that we couldn't. I mean, even, if, <laughs> even if it's a myth, which I don't believe it's really a myth, I think it's real, but I think that that's actually what feeds into hope and optimism. I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, but here's what I would say. Even if it's not true, it's a useful <laughs> fiction. <laughs> it's a good story. <laughs> exactly. You know, who doesn't like a good story? Well, like you could look at it this way. The glass is both half full and half empty. Both are truth. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's no glass there at all. Oh, maybe it's possible. <laughs> but then what, contains the water <laughs> it's you know it's a little bit like here's the, the social construction idea is funny it's like what makes money real oh well it's it's a it's an agreement that makes it real you and i and it, the rest of the world agree that this resource this thing has value right and so there's no it doesn't even have to be a it's thing it's not right? real it's yeah, but it has it has real consequence in the world though right this yes. is i think people have a hard time with social construction in this way it's like they it's like people have, it's easy for human beings to understand physical reality. It's like social, social construction is hard, but when you start to think about it, it's, we're doing it all the time in ways that really matter. I think sometimes people confuse social construction with not real. And I, I just want to, you know, when we talk about, talk about it, it's like a good way to think about it is money. Money doesn't have to be a physical thing for it to be real and have effects in the world, it, incredibly important effects in the world. And it exists in relationships. Um, and I guess I just highlight that that's how I think about the self. And in that, like, like how, how, what does it mean to be free? Like to, for one individual to think about money absent other people, I don't know what that would look like. That's how I think about the self. And also I think about freedom. Well, there could be no money with the absence of others, right? There'd be no need for yeah. it. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It couldn't exist, right? It couldn't there exist. Would be no need for it and it couldn't exist. Yeah. Right. It's only and by I, agreement this, that it has value. Right. And what if the self is the same? Hmm. That's big. Yeah. I think that's the point to stop. <laughs> <laughs> that seemed like the perfect ending. And you know, and they're like question mark, question mark, question mark. A lot of question marks, I agree. <laughs> yeah. And such a good topic. Like you know, the, the challenge is, is to take 
selfless, the social creation of you as as your dinner conversation. That is the point. Everybody should go out and buy the book and bring it home to dinner. I agree. You know, it's the, what I hope for the book is that um, when people read it, that it just washes over them, that it provokes thoughts about themselves and about the world that makes it, that helps them make sense of things that didn't make sense before. I, it's very, there's, it's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell anybody what you should do, but I hope it gives people ideas that I couldn't think of for their own lives. Yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't know my life, but you like to pose the questions that I can use in my exactly. life. Exactly. Yes. I get that. Yes. <laughs> and you don't need to know my life. I mean, you've studied thousands of lives. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's uh, I'm interested in human beings and what it is to be a human being in the world. It's, And I, I also, I really want to respect everyone's unique experience. And so all I can, what I feel like I can do is say, Hey, here's some thoughts about what it is to be human in this world. And I hope this helps you think about how you, how you live and how you engage with others and that it, you find it a, a positive force in your ongoing journey as a human being. Well, I think you're doing it <laughs> personally. And I, I love learning. I mean, this is a new area for me. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to be, be thinking about this, talking about it, asking questions of people that I know, because I'm curious about their thoughts on the subject. Fantastic. That makes me feel really happy. Yeah, me too. My guest today has been Professor Brian Lowry. To learn more about him and his work and the book Selfless, The Social Creation of You, go to knowwhatyousee.com on Twitter at knowwhatyousee. Brian, come back and hang out anytime. We've got we've got more to talk about. I think, I think. so. And I thank you so much for having me. And I'd love to come back. Just let me know when. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Brian Lowry, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress Kamen, Andrea Mangeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.